Hi, everyone. So, um, welcome to what it takes to found a high-impact charity with Judith Rensing. Uh, if you are interested in this subject, um, uh, Judith and the other charity entrepreneurship people will be having office hours in the Corn Exchange at 2 p.m. today. Uh, currently at Charity Entrepreneurship, Judith is responsible for creating and executing predictive vetting processes to identify the charity entrepreneurs of the future. She is also writing training content on how to establish a predictive grant-making process for high-impact foundations, with a forthcoming publication titled, How to Launch a High-Impact Foundation. In addition, Judith occasionally delivers talks and workshops on the subject of launching a high-impact nonprofit, drawing her on her own experiences as well as the expertise of charity entrepreneurship. Everyone, please give it up for Judith Rensing. Great, yeah, thanks so much for the warm intro uh, and the warm welcome. Really happy to be here, really happy to see so many people interested in how to launch a high-impact charity and maybe in founding their own high-impact projects. So, uh, as Catherine announced, I'm Judith, my name's Judith, and I work at Charity Entrepreneurship. Uh, and I had the talent systems, and this is just a fancy way to say I do the application processes for the incubation program. Uh, I did also go through the incubation program myself and co-founded a charity a few years back, so I've kind of been in both seats and have, have a decent idea, I think, of what it takes. And this is what I'm gonna try to convey to you today in this talk slash workshop combination. So let's hop right in for some background information in case you've never heard about it. Charity Entrepreneurship is an EA organization, and what we are trying to do, our mission, is to launch new, highly effective charities. That's the thing that we want to do. And how we do that is mainly through two things. First of all, we have an extensive research process to find the best ideas for new charities that should exist and would be highly impactful. And secondly, we run an incubation program two months, two times per year, where we train a cohort of 15-ish people to actually launch the ideas that we found to be highly impactful and effective. Then we have a couple new charities. We give them some seed funding. We give them ongoing mentorship as they start their charities. And then hopefully, we reach our goal of having high-impact charities started that otherwise would not exist. <clears throat> so our track record so far, we've been going for four years formally we've incubated 23 new charities. And you might have heard about some of them, like the Happier Lives Institute, or LEAP, the Lead Exposure Elimination Project, and several co-founders are actually here today, like Aaron of the Shrimp Welfare Project, or Ben of Maternal Health Initiative. So this is just in, I, to give you an idea of the kinds of charities that we've, found, we've launched in the past. And I'm going to show you two more examples, more in-depth examples, so you really get an idea of what we mean when we say high-impact charities. The first example is LEAP, Lead Exposure Elimination Project. This was co-founded by Lucia and Jack through our program. And the idea that we found in our research process is that there are 815 million kids every year who have lead poisoning in the world. 815 million, that's a lot, that's so much and there are 902,000 deaths every year because of lead poisoning. And how do people actually get poisoned through lead? It's often in paints, especially in low and middle income countries. And there's no regulation for this in over 100 countries in the world right now. So a huge problem, a huge health burden, a lot of suffering, 
but there is something we can do. And what LEAP does is they work with governments to introduce regulations against lead paint. This leads to improved health and well-being outcomes as well as uh, future income for people. <clears throat> and so far, they have launched programs in 11 countries, and they have memorandums of understanding. They have introduced regulation in four governments so far and counting. And what this comes to is a cost effectiveness at, uh, <clears throat> sorry, of 14, 14 US dollars per DALI, per disability adjusted life year. And this is an absolutely insane number. A second example is the Fish Welfare Initiative in animal welfare. We launched, these, we launched this charity in 2019, and they're mostly working in India. And what Fish Welfare Initiative does is they work with farmers, corporations, and government agencies to improve the welfare of farmed fish, for example, through lowering stocking density or increasing oxygen in the water, because farmed fish suffer tremendously. But there are very clear interventions that will make them suffer less. So that is what Fish Welfare Initiatives makes happen in the world. And so far, they are estimated to have helped about 1.3 million fish suffer a lot less, lead better lives. So this is the kinds of charities, just to give you an idea, that we are launching. Very clear interventions and pretty good impact so far. And the bar that we're aiming for with these charities is GiveWell. At the very least, we want to beat current GiveWell top charities both in terms of the evidence for the interventions that we're launching and in terms of the cost effectiveness for these interventions, that they're really, really the most bang for your buck that you could possibly get in the world. So this, in this talk, after I've given you this background idea, I want to explain to you what it takes to found a high-impact charity. And the three things, at the very least, that you need are a really high-impact idea, then you need talented founders, the people who will actually launch the idea and put it into practice. And then you need to actually do it, which is like a big thing. So I'm, in the end, I'm going to give you a sense of what it's like to actually launch one of these charities. So I'm going to start with the first bit, and I want to spend about 10 minutes on this. First, I want to give you an idea of what it takes to find a high-impact idea. Because as we know in EA, good intentions are great, um, but that's not enough. An idea that kind of sounds nice and like it could do some good, that's not good enough. We want to be sure, we want to make sure that an idea will actually be really impactful. So what we need for that is a structured process, a research process. And what could a strong research process look like? That's what I want to answer in this part. How can you find a high impact idea? The process that we use at CE, where we spend thousands of hours of research every single year, looks something like this very condensed in a nutshell. We have five stages. So first of all, we start off by selecting cause areas. We focus on two cause areas every year, and then just focus on finding the best ideas for new charities in these areas. The first thing we do is we come up with hundreds of ideas for charities that we could possibly launch in this area, just to cast the net wide and make sure we're not missing the best things, because we're settling for something that's kind of good but maybe not as great as it could be. And we do this by talking to experts, by consulting the literature, by consulting organizations that already work in the space, very wide net. Uh, we try to come up with really ridiculous ideas uh, as well as very straightforward ideas and come up with hundreds of them. And then what we do is we very quickly prioritize them on a few number of key metrics. 
and then we only move forward with the top 50 ideas and spend more and more time on each of the ideas. That way, you don't miss any good ideas, but you also then spend too much time on ideas that end up not being that high impact. Then we do the quick prioritization, uh, and then we move on after that to the intermediate depth. So at the end of the intermediate depth process, we want to have the top seven to eight ideas out of these originally hundreds of ideas that look like they could be the best ideas for new charities. And finally, we write in-depth reports on each of the top three to five ideas. And now you might be wondering, well, okay, but how do you move through these stages? Like, what are the criteria, the methodologies that you can use to find a good idea, right? And so I'm gonna run you quickly through which methodologies we use in the in-depth reports, for the in-depth reports, when we are at that stage of the research process. So first of all, you need to spend a lot of time. So just spending five hours on any idea that you come across and being like, oh yeah, this seems like it could be kind of good, doesn't seem like enough, nearly enough time to decide to spend years of your life on it, right? And thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars to start the new charity. So you need to have an appropriate amount of time that you spend on selecting your idea. We do that at least 80 hours going to each of the top idea reports. And then the methodologies we use are these five methodologies. Uh, and I'm going to introduce you to four of them. Uh, not to expert interviews, because I can't really show you what they look like, because that's confidential information, because most of the experts don't want to be on tape, that sort of thing, but you can imagine it as Zoom calls with lots of different experts uh, and getting their input on what they think about the idea. So I'm gonna start off with the evidence review. And <clears throat> what I'm gonna do in this part is I'm gonna show you what it actually looks like, rather than explain it to you abstractly. So this, ta-da, is an evidence review. <laughs> this is what it looks like. Uh, this example is for, you can't quite see it, but it's for a uh, family planning idea called postpartum family planning. So an idea that addresses um, health issues and that addresses uh, contraception, needs for contraception after someone has already given birth. Uh, because there is a pretty quick return to fertility where someone can get pregnant again. And a lot of people in low and middle income countries don't take up contraception quick enough, get pregnant again really fast, it's really bad for the mother's health and the children's health. So this is the evidence review we did. You can see here, there's a lot of them. Uh, they're from different countries, implementing in different countries. There's different types of study designs. So for example, systematic reviews are really, really good. They're like the, the, the giga gold standard, the god standard uh, of scientific evidence. Because they look at lots of uh, independent studies and take them together and draw a conclusion from that. Then we also look at RCTs, randomized controlled trials, uh, and other slightly less uh, trustworthy sources of evidence, like observational studies, time series, and that sort of thing. And we compare how good are these pieces of evidence, and what do they say, what do they predict this intervention can actually do. So there's effect sizes over there, how many controls did they have, what was the baseline, so we can evaluate how good this evidence is. And at the end of this, we can draw a conclusion. Is this idea likely to actually work and have a significant effect size in different countries, in different contexts? And now, of course, we could be like, oh, great, that's enough evidence. Uh, surely that idea works. We should go do it. No, we want several methodologies. And we want them to come to the same conclusion. So the other thing that we look at, the second thing, is theories of change. Theory of change is a very common tool in the NGO world. And what you do is you map out the steps 
for how you think this charity is going to achieve good from starting from the activities, the things that the charity does day to day, all the way to how this is going to lead to impact, to actually improving something in the world, easing suffering, making lives better, saving lives. And this is a long process. And this, <clears throat> for example, is for family empowerment media. This is one of the charities that we launched in the family planning space. And what they do is they broadcast shows and ads in Nigeria at the moment to address unmet needs for contraception. So what this means is there are people, in, especially in low-middle-income countries, where people have misconception about how contraception works. For example, they might fear that you get infertile if you use contraception. And then they don't use contraception, although they don't want to have another child. That leads to too many births, uh, too shortly spaced, which is really bad, again, for the mother's health, and leads to really many hundreds of thousands of maternal deaths every single year that could be avoided. And so the theory of change of what that looks like is, first of all, you have to identify barriers and drivers to use a family planning, like what are the issues? Why do people not use contraception, though they don't want another child? Then they develop and produce high-quality programming, so radio shows, and test these programs and adapt them based on the feedback. So that's the things that the charities does, does day to day. And then everything after that is conjecture, right? At, in the first place, as you evaluate the idea. But as you, as you implement the intervention, you can actually follow up and check if all these things are happening. So the thing that happens that from the activities is that you hopefully have one-minute radio ads that are broadcast multiple times each day and long-format radio shows that are broadcast several times a week. <coughs> then the outcomes are hopefully women and men of reproductive age hear this programming and they understand and remember the messages, hopefully. Then the results, hopefully, are that women and men have accurate information to make their reproductive decisions. And they hold these attitudes positively aligned with family planning if they don't want to have another child. In the long term, hopefully, women and men that seek to delay or prevent pregnancy then use contraception. And the goal of that is to reduce unintended pregnancies and increase the intervals between pregnancies. And why the fuck do we care about that? Because of the impact, because that will reduce maternal mortality and address other health burdens for the mother and for the child. So the theory of change maps out everything that goes into launching the charity and then actually having an impact. And there's a lot of assumptions that go into this. And there's a lot of things that need to be assumed. So in order to, when you map this out, you can make these steps explicit and see where might this intervention fail. And this is really important because otherwise you're just like, oh yeah, this sounds great. Uh, and then totally everyone's gonna be happy and fine. Uh, it sounds nice, but it's not realistic. You need to actually map it out. And then the charities can later use that to test whether it's working. They're going to test this, they're going to test this, they're gonna test this, and then in the long run, they're gonna test if actually does the health burden ease. So that's the second thing that you should do, map out a theory of change. The third thing you should do is a country prioritization. So it's not enough to have a problem and a good evidence-based way to fix it. You need to find a place where you can actually implement it, where it will have that desired effect, right? So you need to prioritize which countries are there and this example is from LEAP, so the Lead Exposure Elimination Project. They mapped out all the countries, all the countries, that's what they started with, uh, where there's no lead paint regulation. And then they mapped out 
uh, how, many, how much health burden is there because of the use of lead paint? How much lead paint is even being used? And sometimes they needed to fly to the countries and actually test the paint to find that out, because you can't just assume that. Uh, and then there's other things, like are other actors already working in the space in that country? Because then your impact is counterfactually much lower. And finally, is there something like political difficulties that would make it hard for a charity to work in that space? So there's a lot of things that you need to prioritize if you want to select an actual location to implement. Uh, and this is what it could look like. Again, we love spreadsheets, in case you haven't noticed. They're just really useful for looking at a lot of information uh, and triaging and making decisions. So after this, the last thing I have for you is cost-effectiveness analysis. And you're probably either really excited about them or, or quite intimidated. Uh, I'm probably a bit in the latter camp, but I do love them. Uh, and this is an example of a cost-effectiveness analysis. The idea here is to calculate really clearly what are the benefits you expect if you implement this intervention, and how much does it cost to implement this intervention? So that at the end, you have a very clear number for how much benefit do you get for your cost? How much bang for your buck? How much to save a life? How much to improve a life for one disability-adjusted life year, one DALI? That kind of metric, that kind of measurement. This example is one of our charities, Fortify Health, and they fortify wheat flour, in India mostly at the moment, with iron. And what this mostly does, it addresses anemia, uh, depression, and a few other health burdens like that. And what you can see here is they really, this is a GiveWell uh, CEA, by the way, because they are kind of the kings, the queens of, of, of cost-effectiveness analysis. They spend hundreds of hours on them. So a really good example. What they do is they look at how much anemia do I avert if I fortify wheat flour? Boom, like lots of lots of numbers then what are the cognitive benefits of doing this in children? Then what are the cognitive benefits in adults from doing this? Then how much does it actually cost? And as you can see here, there are a lot of assumptions that go into a cost-effectiveness analysis if you do it properly, such as moral weights. Like how much do you value uh, fixing a child's health as opposed to an adult's health? Does this make a difference, saving a life for an adult or a child? And you need to input actual assumptions into that. And of course, the annual cost per person uh, has its own tab over there. Uh, a lot of assumptions go into that, but here it's made very explicitly. And you can uh, link to the evidence or mark how sure you are about the evidence. And then you do get one single bottom line, the cost per outcome. Uh, and they do it here in terms of averting the death of an individual under five, so of a child. And they compare it with the baseline of Against Malaria Foundation a give well top charity. So that's what a cost effectiveness analysis can look like. And this is definitely what you should have to find a good idea. Because just doing good is not why we're here, right? Effective altruism is about finding the best ways to make an impact and to use the limited resources we have to do the most good we possibly can. So that's what we do. And at the end of this large, large process that many researchers work on, we have intervention reports for the top ideas. Uh, 80 hours go into each, at the very least. And again, a reminder, these are the methodologies that go into it, at the very least. And the idea of using several methodologies, I just want to drive this home again, is that if you just have one piece of evidence, you just do an evidence review, or you just do a cost-effectiveness analysis, it's not enough. What you need is several pieces of evidence that converge on the same answer. This is the best charity idea you could launch, you could possibly create because then the conclusion is much more robust.
So that's how you get a high-impact idea. Now let's look at the founders. And this is a bit of more of a workshoppy part of the session. And um, what I want you to do is grab a piece of paper. Uh, there might be some paper around. You could also use your phone if you wanted to. Um, yeah, and I'm going to introduce you to what it takes, what are the typical traits for high-impact founders. And then I'm going to ask you to assess yourself on these traits. So I'm going to start us off with some good news. The many first thoughts that many of us might have are wrong. You do need, not need to be a certain age. You do not need to have a particular background in anything in particular. And you don't need to have like a particularly outgoing personality or that sort of thing to be a high-impact founder. The people that make it onto our incubation program and that have in the past found it really high-impact charities are from a wide range of ages, backgrounds, where they came from, demographics, geographies, and that sort of thing. There is no common denominator there. However, there are some traits that we see again and again, and on the basis of which we've made this model of five key traits. Now, before I'm going to ask you to assess yourself on these and explain these a bit more, I'm going to do some hedging, because we're in EA and it's really important. <laughs> um, each of these traits is not 100% necessary, and no one will have all of these traits. We know that imposter syndrome is rampant in EA, and you might tend to evaluate yourself a bit too low on the lower side. Um, yeah, and nor is it a guarantee of success to have all of these. So take everything with a grain of salt. Uh, and furthermore, one more good piece of news, all of them are somewhat trainable. So if you feel like, ah, this seems like a really a weakness of mine, that's fine. You can work on it. You can train this. But this is a heuristic, a model that most of our charity entrepreneurs fit, and it is really helpful to understand what it takes to be a great founder of a high-impact charity. So I'm going to explain each of these first, and then give you some questions to self-assess. So the first trait we're going to look at is ambitious altruism, being ambitiously altruistic. This is like the top thing. People who end up founding great charities, in our experience, do put impact first, both in their worldview and in their actual actions. They're really, really motivated by the, pro, the, pro, uh, the idea of achieving impact and of making good things happen, of helping people. They often have a high bar or even no bar for what is enough. They're not like, oh yeah, just doing my 30 hours of work in an EA organization is like enough. They're no, I want to do more. I want to figure out if I can do even more than that. They do often think about the counterfactuals. So what else could I be doing with my time? Or what else could I be spending my money on? Because this makes a difference for the actual impact in the world. And they often have low ego uh, and low other competing motivations. So impact is really, really important. And people tend to be a little bit obsessive about impact. So now I'm going to ask you to rate yourself out of 10. How much do you think you fulfill this trait relative to other people in the world? So don't only think about EA and about your friends, because uh, you might already be in kind of a, a bubble that leans towards altruism and that sort of thing. Just give yourself a rough rating out of 10. Um, and here are some questions to help you, help you think through how much you might fulfill that trait.
Okay, let's hop to the next trade. So the next trade is results focus, really a, a laser focus on getting actual results and actual outcomes rather than just inputting some work and feeling good about yourself on the basis of that. Our highest impact founders are really, really focused on that. They're really focused on wanting to measure the results that they produce rather than just assuming, oh, uh, maybe I work in an EA organization, surely, surely that's enough, surely that means I'm having an impact. No, they wanna actually measure the outcomes and the impact of their work. They do put consequences over a lot of other values that you could value, like excellence, achievement, vanity, like your own personal gain, consensus, peer pressure, doing what everyone thinks is good, that sort of thing. So they're a bit more motivated by the pro prospect of actually having an impact, actually doing good, uh, even if no one sees it. It's just about what actually happens in the world. And again, please give yourself a rough rating out of 10. It's not about the exact number. It's more about, do you think this is a weaker area of mine? Am I like, oh, not that results focused, more like a four? Or like, yeah, I really do care about results and I ask all the time uh, about what is this actually producing? I'll give myself a nine. Got a score? Okay, let's look at the third trade of great charity entrepreneurs. The third trade is fitting with startup culture. <laughs> the people who end up finding great charities need to be really comfortable moving fast and 80-20 things. So getting 80% of the results and 20% of the time. This is because if you start a startup, whether it be for profit or non-profit, you gotta do everything yourself and there will never be enough time to do everything and to do it well. You just have to focus on the key results and just get shit done. These people often are resilient to pressure and risk and they just bounce back. They tend to fail at something and then they're like, ah, damn it, okay, how can I, how can I fix this? Or if I don't need to fix it, how can I move on and focus on what's important? Like this morning, um, I, I missed my uh, colleague's talk because I fucked up the schedule. Uh, and for a second, instead of, instead of being really hard on myself and being like, man, I'm such a bad person, maybe there was a moment of that too. But I asked someone, I wrote people on WhatsApp, hey, are you gonna be in this thing and can you record it for me? Problem solved, move on. Focus on what's important. Get here to the, for the talk. That sort of mindset. So bouncing back after failure and being resilient to risk and to doing things wrong, because it's gonna happen a lot. They're often very creative, so they're often self-starters who will come up with new solutions, but how about if we could do it this way instead? They're comfortable working a lot and putting their jobs first in a certain sense. They're often highly capable of dealing with very complex matters and producing great outputs in short timeframes, even under pressure, and able to motiv motivate themselves independently without someone being there and saying like, hey, have you done this thing? or a looming deadline, because you need to be able to motivate yourself to actually do the work that your charity needs, right? So here are some questions to help you rate yourself on this trait. Got a rating? <laughs> Great. 
Okay, now let's come to the fourth trait, and this one is an interesting one, because it seems at first glance to conflict a little bit with this one. The fourth trait is scientific mindset and good epistemics. And the reason that this might sometimes conflict a little bit is because in the scientific method, is very analytic and takes a lot of time to do well and to do very thorough, right? But you don't have that sort of time. You need to move fast. So there is always a trade-off involved between these two things. But scientific mindset is still really important. And what it's mostly about is believing in and pursuing, wanting to create empirical and systematic evidence. So believing that there are things that are true or not true about the world and that you need to test it to actually find out what is the case, rather than just doing it in your head and trying to figure it all out from first principles. So the people who make it onto our program, they don't have to have a particular scientific background, but they need to be able to learn and motivated to learn how to critically and accurately assess different sources of evidence, like I've shown you in the methodologies. You need to be able to learn how to assess these different sorts of evidence and how to trade them off and weigh them <clears throat> when you have different, different qualities of, of studies, for example. A thing that people who are strong on this often do is that they will check themselves and others for biases, because they know that everybody's only human, and there are certain, there are things, systematic um, things that people do and that studies do, and they will try to check for these things. They often think for themselves. They don't defer too much to experts or real experts. And this is the thing that we want to stress, because in EA, there does tend to be a, a sort of deference to the experts in EA. And like, it makes sense in a certain sense. But as soon as you have a bit more time, as soon as, an, as a decision is really important, you need to be able to put in the work and test things for yourself and see whether the evidence holds up. People like that are often also humble and quite open-minded and not absolutely set on their own idea or cause area, that sort of thing. They will be transparent in their reasoning and be able to handle quite abstract conversations with novel ideas and then update on the basis of new information, integrate new information into their worldview and change their minds if there's new evidence. And again, here are some questions for you to rate yourself and assess yourself out of 10. And the idea here with these questions is to give you a sense of how much you tend towards that trait, even if, you're not, if you don't have it fully formed. So again, if you do have a very scientific background and you're like, yeah, I know, like RCT is like the back of my hand. I've run one myself. That is amazing. And we get very excited about that. But if you don't, you can still learn how to do it. It's more about the approach, about the mindset. Do you think scientific evidence, empirical evidence, is actually really important, really useful? So these questions are a bit more designed to get, give you a sense of that, about your open-mindedness and you, your caring about evidence. So you get a score. Let's turn to the last one. The last one is something we call a collaborative personality. Bit of a fuzzy, fuzzy concept, um, but the idea is that you must be able to collaborate effectively with a wide range of different people in order to launch a charity. This might be in-country people, these might be stakeholders, uh, people in a ministry in a foreign country, these might be other EAs, they might be funders from a family foundation that has nothing to do with EA. You need to be able to understand and communicate effectively with all these different sorts of people, and they're going to be very different. 
And furthermore, it's also really helpful because if you have a very collaborative, low-drama personality and get along with lots of people, you also have a wider range of selection for your co-founder. And you are going to need a co-founder. Uh, there's a lot of evidence, both from the for-profit and the non-profit space, that two-person co-founder teams do best in starting new projects. They vastly outperform both three-person and single-person teams. So you need to be able to work with, with people. And here again are some questions to help you assess on yourself, to help you assess yourself on the slightly, slightly fuzzy trait. My favorite one is the customer service one. <laughs> so give yourself a score. And again, um, this sort of behavior is also trainable. So you can notice, maybe, that you don't immediately gel well with absolutely everybody, but you can find ways to deal with that, right? And like work effectively with different sorts of people. So now you should have five scores. And if you add these up, you get to a score between zero, probably not, and 50. Um, <clears throat> and of course, this is a very subjective judgment. Uh, and you're gonna add on some bonus points, perhaps, if you do have specific cause area expertise. So you can give yourself a few extra points out of five if you have specific experience in a cause area, working there, doing something, doing deeper research into a cause area. We do want to emphasize again, it's not necessary to start a charity, but it is useful. Okay, so now you have a score. Um, I would say that anything above 30 means that you should definitely, 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 definitely look into this career option or adjacent career options, like working in early stage charities. Uh, because there is a very narrow range of people for whom this is a good fit. So if you might be a good fit for this, look into it. Uh, and then of course, take your, your, um, your judgment with a grain of salt, uh, because depending on where you come from, your background, you might evaluate yourself differently, you might judge yourself against different peers. This is just to give you a very broad sense. And what I'd like to, to invite you to do now is to spend five minutes and turn to your partner, turn to someone who's next to you or move to find someone next to you and have a short discussion. What are the things that you think you might be strongest at versus weakest at? And what are your overall thoughts on your fit? And if you have a little bit of extra time, come up with one or two ways that you could improve on your weakest points. And that's time. That's time. Great, it's really great to see so many people discussing so animatedly, and the thing that I really want to encourage is the growth mindset with this. So you might have strengths, you might have weaknesses. If you are keen to found a high-impact project, just work on your weaknesses. But now, let's turn to what it's actually like to launch a charity. What is it like to actually do it? Because it takes a couple things to actually do it. The first thing is the kinds of things that you will need to learn. So, this is just a very, very small overview of the kinds of things that we teach on the incubation program. So one thing you might have to learn, you will have to learn, is monitoring and evaluation, M&E, which is where you go into the theory of change and you look at all the steps and all the assumptions and you measure how well it's actually working out. And then you might adapt on the basis of that or even shut down your charity if it's just not as impactful as you thought it could be. You might have to learn basic statistics to evaluate results. You have to get really good at task management, at, at how to get shit done every single day. 
You have to get good at organizational prioritization. So if you have a lot of different work streams, what are you actually going to do day to day? What do you need to focus on? You need to make strategic decisions that will optimize both in the short run and in the long run. And these are always difficult decisions. And you will also have to do a bunch of operationsy stuff like making a budget, making sure you're legally and financially compliant with local laws. You have to register your charity. Where should you even register? India, the UK, who knows? And you need to form a board. And if you neglect forming a board, then something like the FTX crash might happen because you just don't have the oversight. So form a board <laughs> and do it well. <laughs> Furthermore, there's lots of roles and responsibilities. And you need to divide these up because everything needs to get done by you and your co-founder. Two people, everything. So this is an example out of a policy, alcohol policy charity um, that were, was considered a charity entrepreneurship. And this is an example of how you might divide up the kinds of work that needs to be done. There's stuff like HR and hiring, uh, management, external communications, advocacy with the governments, uh, visual communications, fundraising, uh, but also more researchy things and operations. All of that needs to get done and you need to divide it up. So you should probably be excited to learn at least half of the kinds of work involved in the charity that you'd be looking to found, because uh, someone's got to do it, and it's probably you. Furthermore, it's not easy, and this is an important thing to also be aware of, to not just like use rose-tinted glasses. It is a very uncertain career path. There is a high risk of failure. Every single day, you need to make decisions. You will never have perfect information to actually make these. Uh, and you might end up failing. You might spend a year of your life giving it your best. And then something happens. COVID happens. Maybe the intervention just doesn't work out in the place where you wanted to implement it. There was no counterfactual impact. You might have to shut down. Um, this is something to be aware of, to be comfortable with. There will also be financial limitations. You are responsible for fundraising your own salary. Uh, and if you're talented enough to launch a charity, you're talented enough to make a ton of money somewhere else, for example, in the for-profit sector. And you need to accept this and be comfortable with it. You won't have as much time with friends and family, probably, as you'd ideally like in an ideal life. And work-life balance will be impacted. So there's a saying we have among entrepreneurs is, it's great, you can choose your own hours, as long as it's all of them. <laughs> and this is true. Uh, but you do it for something that's deeply meaningful and deeply impactful. And last, it's sometimes quite unglamorous. You might just sit in a hotel room somewhere in Rwanda, and you're trying to get the Wi-Fi running for that important donor call, and it's not working. And that kind of stuff will happen. And you need to just live with it and deal with it and move on and get shit done for the impact that you're looking to have. However, there are also other benefits. This is like a small, even just a small list of the possible benefits uh, of this career path. And many of them are about the long-term impact that you can have with your career. Uh, especially about learning, skill building, career capital. You'll work uh, across so many domains. You get such a good knowledge of how things fit together. You'll build so many skills. You'll inspire the space around you. You create new positions. You'll shift funding. All of those kinds of things will happen. So there are many, many benefits to offset this. As for the challenges, the ways that we try to address it with incubation program uh, is like as follows. Um, the program is two months. And in the first month, the big benefits are we help you choose an idea, a research-backed idea, and a co-founder. And there will be training by working on actual projects and narrowing down on the intervention that you want to do and the co-founder that is a good fit for you. 
And in the second month, you will actually build your charity, narrow down on the intervention, choose a country, and make a website and pitch deck, and then get that baby running with seed funding, <laughs> up to 200K. And there will be ongoing mentorship as well after you launch your charity in the program. And finally, maybe one of the biggest benefits is community. So when I uh, went through the incubation program, before I worked with CE, uh, it was COVID. It was COVID times. And it was really, really helpful to have a bunch, like a village of talented charity entrepreneurs who do the same kind of stuff that I do, who go through the same kinds of challenges and being able to help each other out. It's really valuable. You need a community. As for the application process, it looks something like that. Very uh, straightforward application form, test task, interview, test task, interview. And this is, again, an iterative process, like the research process, where we just move on with the highest potential candidates, just like with the ideas. And in the end, we're really sure about the people that we let into the incubation program. But even if you don't make it onto the program, we have launched a, we have published a book, How to Launch a High Impact Foundation. It's, um, the second edition is much shorter than the first, which is way too long. Uh, and it contains everything that you need to know to start out. So even if you don't make it into the program, this is a great way to learn how to do it. And it's on Amazon and all over the world. And we're hoping that more and more people can learn how to start a high impact nonprofit that way than we could ever incubate. It's also recommended by Peter Singer, everyone's sweetheart. And since you made it this far in my workshop, I got a treat for you. It's the end. Um, this is Peter Singer, the man himself, wearing a t-shirt of the charity that I co-founded through CE. And this was probably the peak coolness of my career. I'll, I'll never, never do anything better than that. Um, but besides impact, this is the level of peak coolness you could reach if you launch your own charity. And I'll leave you with these final facts. The next application round is July 10th to September 30th. We have several rounds every year, two programs, and in this application round, you can apply for the 2024 programs. Uh, and I'd just like to encourage you, if this was at all interesting and exciting, rather than boring or like a bit too intense, give it a shot. You got nothing to lose. First stage, 30 minutes. <laughs> yeah, that's the end. That's it. <laughs> And I think we all love to see that Peter Singer photo. Such a nice <laughs> surprise. Uh, please get your questions in via swap card, because I am sure we would all love to hear uh, Judith's insights. So it's just on the live discussion tab on this, page's swap, on this event's swap card page. So far, uh, we have a question. Um, a lot of these traits are traits that might be good for other high-impact jobs, such as a researcher or other just jobs in EA. Do you have a reason that people should prioritize entrepreneurship over some of these other positions? Yeah, the first one is that the counterfactual impact of starting a charity is just so large. If you get a job in an EA organization or a high-impact organization, odds are that the next best candidate is just a little bit worse than you are. Uh, if you found a new charity that wouldn't have existed otherwise, you're creating entirely new amount of counterfactual impact. Um, we estimate that the charities we've launched so far have an average value of 250K equivalent in donations per year to Against Malaria Foundation per founder. So unless your job produces as much value or as much money as 250K on donations to give world top charities, uh, launching a high impact charity, if you're a good fit, is likely to be the higher impact option. Uh, and also this, like, this combination of traits that I've shown you is really hard to find. 
So the counterfactualness of you going for this, if you're a good fit, is really, really high. It's our key bottleneck. Uh, well, the next question was actually going to be, what is the bottleneck for charity entrepreneurship? <laughs> uh, is it researchers to find high impactful areas? Is it founders for these charities? Or is it funding? Or is it something else, for instance? Uh -huh. So you might not be very surprised to learn that it's founders. So uh, funding is like fair enough to get by. It differs according to cause area, especially like first year charities have it, have it the easiest. Then longer term, it might be a bit more difficult to get funding as you move on to bigger funders. But f there is enough funding. This is not a key bottleneck. And ideas, there are so many good ideas. It's actually kind of insane. The reason we can set the bar that high is because there are so many good ideas. And also, you could replicate the Against Malaria Foundation more than 10 times over, and you still haven't protected everyone from malaria who's currently at risk. So ideas are not the bottleneck either. It's really talented founders. And I will say we do have a very specific, um, as you've seen, like idea of, of the founders we've seen be most successful. So it's a very small number of people that fills these traits, and we need to find them. And that's why we're here today. All right, last question. How do you weigh the insights of GiveDirectly, bottom-up, location-based, beneficiary-led, against the importance of starting new charities, top-down, more cosmopolitan? Yeah, I think the, um, the thing that we prioritize more is doing the most good we can do. So the people that are looking to start high-impact charities, they could be doing something else. But the thing that will be most high-impact for them to do is the thing that we want them to do. Like, we do think that local projects are great. And we do like that there are a lot of like, charities that are working more locally and are involved with the communities. But what we are wondering is, like, how can we do more good? And us, like the people in this room, if you look at your local community and what you could be doing there, probably is a lot less cost-effective than what you could be doing somewhere else. And that's the thing that we prioritize and that our founders prioritize, right? So we want the most bang for our buck. Um, so we're going to focus on the places where we can actually produce the most good. All right. I wish we had time for more questions, but unfortunately, we have to wrap up. Thank you so much, Judith. 2 p.m. office hours. Yes, <laughs> 2 p.m. office hours at the Corn Exchange. Okay. Uh, thank you so much.